A home in the neon. It's the strangest thing. I have lived in a lot of cities, some of them for substantial lengths of time, but I have never thought of any of them as home. I thought of them as where I'm living now. Then the other morning, I woke up and realized that Las Vegas has indeed become my home. That I routinely think of it as such. Somehow, in the few years that I have been living here and traveling out of here, this most unhomelike of cities has come to function for me as a kind of moral bottom line, as a secular refuge and a source of comforts and reassurances that are unavailable elsewhere, as a home, in other words. Even as I write this, however, I realize that claiming Las Vegas as my home. While practicing art criticism in the hypertextualized, super virtuous high culture of the 1990s, probably sounds a little studied, a bit calculatedly exotic, as if I were trying to make a statement or something. In truth, this condition of feeling at home in Las Vegas makes me wonder just how far back things really go, since when I was a child. Whenever I heard about Las Vegas, it was always being discussed as a potential home by my dad's jazz musician buddies and their so-called wives, as my mom invariably referred to them. This was back in the 1950s, when Las Vegas was rapidly becoming the only city in the American West where a professional musician might hold down a steady gig without living out of a suitcase. So, for my dad's pals, Vegas shone out there in the desert like a grail, as a kind of outlaw town, like Butch Cassidy's Hole in the Wall or Fritz Lang's Rancho Notorious, where a tiring swing musician or a jive-talking bobster might find a refuge from the road and from respectability as well. A player might work steadily in Vegas and perhaps get a taste of fat America. Might rent a house in the suburbs, for instance, with a two-car garage and a yard, even, and still be able to play Charlie Parker in the kitchen at 4 a.m. and roll the occasional funny cigarette. The only time I was ever in Las Vegas as a child, we spent a hot afternoon in the dark kitchen of a pink stucco bungalow. Doing approximately that. While the sun glared outside, my dad and his friend Shelton drank beer out of tall brown bottles and played Billy Holiday's "Gloomy Sunday" about a zillion times. The whole afternoon, Shelton kept marveling at the ease with which he would pick up his axe later that evening, put it in the trunk of his Pontiac, and drive down to his gig at the Desert Inn. He pantomimed this procedure two or three times, just to show us how easy it was. That night, we got to go with him to the Desert Inn, where there were a million lights, roulette wheels clicking, and guys in tuxedos who looked like Cornell Wilde. Through the plate glass windows, we could see a turquoise swimming pool surrounded by rich green grass, and there were white tablecloths on the tables in the lounge. Where we sat with other sophisticates and grooved to the music.
I thought it was great, but I, my dad got progressively grumpier as the evening wore on. He kept making remarks about Shelton's musicianship, and I could tell that he was envious of his friend's steady gig. So, having told you this, if I tell you that I now have a steady gig in Vegas, that I live two blocks from the Desert Inn and eat lunch there about once a week, you will understand my reservations about the possibility of our ever growing up. Because even though the days of steady gigs for sax maniacs are long gone, I still think of Vegas the way Shelton did, as a town where outsiders can still get work, three shifts a day, around the clock, seven days a week, and when not at work, may walk unmolested down the sidewalk in their choice of apparel. My brother calls Vegas a cowboy town because 50-year-old heterosexual guys still room together here, and pairs of married couples share suburban homes, dividing up the bedrooms and filling the communal areas with beer cans and pizza boxes. Most importantly for me, Vegas is a town that can serve as the heart's destination a town where half the pickup trucks stolen in Arizona, Utah, Montana, and Wyoming are routinely recovered in casino parking lots, where the vast majority of the population arises every morning absolutely delighted to have escaped hometown America and the necessity of chatting with mom over the back fence. This lightens the tone of social intercourse considerably. To cite an example, while I was having breakfast at the local IHOP the other morning, my waitress confided in me that, even though the International House of Pancakes wasn't the greatest organization in the world, they had transferred her out of Ogden, Utah, and she was thankful for that. But not so thankful, she said, that she planned to stay in food. As soon as she got Lance in school, she confided, she was moving up to Cocktail, where the tips were better. She was looking forward to that, she said, and to be honest, it's moments like this that have led me to adopt Las Vegas as mi barrio. I mean, here was an American in the 90s who was thankful for something and looking forward to something else. So now I affectionately exchange stories of Vegas's little quirks with my fellow homies. I chuckle over the legendary teddy bear in the gift shop at Caesar's Palace that was reputedly sold 500 times. Every night, it seems, some John would buy it for a hooker. Every morning, the hooker would bring it back for cash. That night, another John would buy it for another hooker. And thus, the cycle continued until <laughs> Hair and Teddy, that fuzzy emblem of middle-aged desire became irretrievably shop-worn. I also defend my adopted hometown against its detractors, a great many of whom who are disconsolate colleagues of mine down at the university, lost souls whom I must count among those who are not looking forward to moving up from food to cocktail who do not arise from their slumber, thanking their lucky stars 
to have escaped mom and dad and fucking Ithaca. These exiles, it seems, find Las Vegas lacking in culture. Define culture. They think it is all about money, which I always agree is the worst way of discriminating among individuals, except for all the others. They also deplore the fact that Las Vegas exploits people's weaknesses. Although in my view, Vegas rather theatrically fails to exploit that most plangent American weakness for being parented into senility. This is probably why so many of them regard Vegas as an unfit atmosphere in which to raise children. Although judging by my students, the town turns out an amazingly resilient and insouciant brand of American adolescent, one whose penchant for body decoration seems to me a healthier way of theatricalizing one's lack of prospects than the narcotics that performed this function for my generation. Most of all, I suspect that my unhappy colleagues are appalled by the fact that Vegas presents them with a flatline social hierarchy that having ascended from food to cocktail in Las Vegas, there is hardly anywhere else to go, except perhaps up to magician. And being a professore in this environment doesn't feel nearly as special as it might in Cambridge or Bloomington, simply because the rich, the traditional clients of the professore class, are not special in Las Vegas, because money here is just money. You can make a lot of it here, but there are no <laughs> socially sanctioned forms of status to ennoble ones having made it, nor any predetermined socio-cultural agendas that one might pursue as a consequence of having been so ennobled. Membership in the university club will not get you comped at Caesars unless you play Baccarat. Thus, in the absence of vertical options, one is pretty much thrown back onto one's own cultural resources. And for me, this has not been the worst place to be thrown. At least I have begun to wonder if the privilege of living in a community with a culture does not outweigh the absence of a cultural community and, to a certain extent, explain its absence. Actually, it's not so bad. My TLS and LRB come in the mail every week, regular as clockwork, and just the other day I took down my grandfather's Cicero and read for nearly an hour without anyone breaking down my door <laughs> and forcing me to listen to Wayne Newton. This deficiency of haute bourgeois perks, I should note, <laughs> also confuses visiting Easterners who whom I have docented <laughs> down the strip. So attentive are they to signifiers of status and exclusivity that they become restless and frustrated. The long lateral blend of Vegas iconography, 
<laughs> unrolls before them, and they are looking for the unmarked door through which the cognoscenti pass. They want the secret Vegas. But Vegas is about stakes, not status. Real action, not covert connections. The high roller rooms with satin walls are secure areas for high-stakes gambling, not hideouts for high-profile dilettantes. If Bruce Willis and Shannon Doherty just want to get their feet wet, they shoot dice with the rest of us. This seems to confuse my visitors, who don't, of course, believe in cele celebrity. But still, the idea of people with names gambling <laughs> in public offends their sense of order and mitigates their aspirations as well, I suspect. In any case, when visiting Culturati, actually start shivering in the horizontal flux, I take them to one of the restaurants in town where tank tops are sort of discouraged. <laughs> this is the best I can do to restore their sense of propriety because the secret of Vegas is that there are no secrets. And there are only two rules, post the odds <laughs> and treat everyone the same. Just as one might in a democracy, what a concept. And this deficiency of secrets and economy of rules drives writers crazy. They come here to write about Vegas. They are trained in depth analysis. They have ripped the lid off seamy scandals by getting behind the scenes, and Las Vegas is invisible to them. They see the lights, of course, but they end up writing stories about white people who are so unused to regulating their own behavior that they gamble away the farm, get drunk, throw up on their loafers, and wind up in custody within six hours of their arrival. Or they write profiles of the colorful Runyon-esque characters they meet in casinos, oblivious to the fact that such characters populate half the bar rooms in America. That, in truth, they need only have driven a few blocks for their colorful characters, had they been inclined to transgress the rigid stratifications that, in their hometowns, stack the classes like liqueurs in a desert drink. America, in other words, is a very poor lens through which to view Las Vegas, while Las Vegas is a wonderful lens through which to view America. What is hidden elsewhere? exists here in quotidian visibility. So when you fly out of Las Vegas to, say, Milwaukee, the absences imposed by repression are like holes in your vision. They become breathtakingly perceptible, and as a consequence, there is no better place than Las Vegas for a traveler to feel at home. The town has a quick, feral glamour that is hard to localize. <laughs> and it arises, I think, out of the suppression of social differences rather than their exacerbation. Thus, the whole city floats on a sleek frisson of anxiety and promise that those of us addicted to such distraction must otherwise <laughs> induce... <laughs> 
By motion or medication? America, in other words, is a very poor lens through which to view Las Vegas, while Las Vegas is a wonderful lens through which to view America. What is hidden elsewhere exists here in quotidian visibility. So when you fly out of Las Vegas to, say, Milwaukee, the absences imposed by repression are like holes in your vision. They become breathtakingly perceptible, and as a consequence, there is no better place than Las Vegas for a traveler to feel at home. The town has a quick, feral glamour that is hard to localize, and it arises, I think, out of the suppression of social differences rather than their exacerbation. Thus, the whole city floats on a sleek frisson of anxiety and promise that those of us addicted to such distraction must otherwise induce by motion or medication. Moreover, since I must regularly venture out of Vegas onto the bleak savannas of high culture and there, like an aging gigolo, generate bodily responses to increasingly <laughs> abject objects of desire, there is nothing quite as bracing as the prospect of flying home, of swooping down into that ardent explosion of lights in the heart of the pitch-black desert, of coming home to the only indigenous visual culture on the North American continent, a town bereft of white walls, gray wool carpets, ficus plants, and Barcelona chairs, where there is everything to see and not a single pretentious object demanding to be scrutinized. I remember one particular evening in the spring I was flying back from Washington, D.C. after serving on a national endowment for the arts panel. For four solid days, I had been seated on a wooden chair in a dark room, looking at racks of slides, five at a time. Blam, 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 ad infinitum. All hope departed somewhere near the end of the second day, and I started counting popular iconography skulls, little houses, little boats, altars, things in jars, etc. By the end of the third day, despair had become a real option, but we finally selected the correct number of winners. And a number of these actually won. The rest won the privilege of having their awards overturned by a higher court on the grounds of propriety. The moment I stepped off the plane, I sat down in the terminal to play video poker. Basically, I was doing the same thing I had been doing in Washington, looking at banks of five images, one after another, interpreting fin finite permutations of a limited iconography, looking for a winner. Sitting there at the slot machine, however, I was comfortable in the knowledge that Vegas cheats you fair. That, unlike the rest of America, and Washington in particular, the payoffs are posted, 
and the odds easily calculable. I knew how much of a chance I had to win. It was slim, of course, but it was a real chance, nevertheless. Not some vague promise of parental benevolence contingent on my behavior. In the reality of that chance, Vegas lives, in those fluttery moments of faint but rising hope, in the possibility of wonder, in the swell of desire, while the dice are still bouncing, just before the cards flips, face up. And win or lose, you always have that instant of genuine. Justifiable hope. It is always there. Even though we know the rules governing random events are always overtaken by the law of large numbers, there is always that window of opportunity, that statistical crazy tone, before this happens, when anything can happen. And what's more, if you win, you win. You can take it home. You cannot be deemed unworthy after the fact. As we all were in Washington when we played our hearts out and never had a fucking chance. So right there in the airport, I could make a little wager, and there was a real chance that luck and foolish courage might, just for the moment, just for a couple of bucks, override the quagmire of status and virtue in which we daily languish. And if I got really lucky, I might move up from food to cocktail. Hey, don't laugh. It could happen. Simple hearts. In the autumn of eighteen seventy-five, Gustave Flaubert suspended his Herculean labors on Bouvard and Pichuchet to write three stories about saints. They were published together in April of eighteen seventy-seven, under the title Trois Contes. The finest and strangest of these stories he wrote for his friend George Sand, who never stopped pleading with him to mitigate his customary bleakness a little, and write a work marked by compassion, and a simple heart, a cœur simple, is certainly so marked, although not in any way that George Sand would have recognized. Set in the early years of the nineteenth century. In the bleak provincial milieu around Pont-l'Evêque and Trouville, only a few miles from Flaubert's home at Crossy, a simple heart tells the story of Félicité, an isolated, illiterate Catholic house servant. It narrates her life from birth to death as a poised, sotto voce litany of labor and loss, of emotional neglect and wasted time. That dissolves suddenly in the last sentence of the story, into this dazzling image of mercy, a vision of grace as gaudy and permissive as a tiepolo ceiling. Eighty years after Flaubert finished writing *A Simple Heart* in provincial France, I finished reading it in provincial Texas, sitting in the wooden swing on the shady porch of my grandparents' house. In South Fort Worth, and having finished it, Flaubert's story, which had transported me out of the present, delivered me back into it with sharpened awareness. I can still remember the hard angle of the morning light, 
and the smell of cotton seed in the lazy air as I sat there on the swing with my forearms on my knees and trois contes between my hands, amazed that writing could do what it had just done. Since I was reading not just as a reader, but as a reader who wanted to be a writer, I also felt a glimmer of insight into a question that had troubled me since I had read Madame Bovary and Salambo in quick succession, as Flaubert had written them. Why, I wondered, would the cold-eyed master of Madame Bovary, the scourge of provincial ennui, whose consequences I felt qualified to judge, have abandoned that worthy project to write a romance of Mediterranean antiquity? Why would he have barricaded himself with books and dreams in the study of his mother's house, out there amidst the fields of mud and vegetables, to reimagine the oriental glamour of ancient Carthage? To what end, I wondered, and now, in the tiny apotheosis at the end of A Simple Heart, I saw a door opening between the two books, between the banality of Madame Bovary and the splendor of Salambo, and I understood, if only vaguely, something about writing and what it does in the world. Since then, I have come to regard A Simple Heart as Flaubert's great allegory of his own vocation, and have always assumed that if Madame Bovary is none other than Flaubert as a fool in abjection, as he himself suggested, the servant Felicité is almost certainly Flaubert as a saint in glory. Rising up, in the final moments of the story, out of the banality of his home country, into the opening wings of this dazzling, improbable carrot. Parrot. The tacit parallel between Flaubert's endeavors and those of his character, I think, may be inferred from the peculiarities of tense and tone that complicate a simple heart, more certainly since, given Flaubert's methods, we may presume that these peculiarities are far from inadvertent. In two passages describing the local landscape, for instance, Flaubert slips abruptly into the present tense. This jolts in French, but it has the effect of collapsing the distance between Flaubert and his narrative by substituting the voice of Gustave, the local citizen, for that of Flaubert, the all-seeing author. A similar collapse of authorial distance occurs in those moments when Flaubert's cool narration of Felicité's existence suddenly glitters with sophisticated contempt. In these passages, I suspect, the cosmopolitan Flaubert wants to remind us that, even though he can forgive Felicité's provincial innocence, he cannot forgive his own lost innocence in her, for they are two in one. Considering Felicité as a character in a story, then, it helps to think of her as Flaubert's Job, a character equally afflicted, yet bereft of Job's anger at the injustice of his afflictions. Because, although Felicité suffers, she never feels that she is suffering injustice. Things are stolen from her that she, can, that she never suspects are hers to claim. 
Her family abandons her, then exploits her. She doesn't even notice. Her only beau humiliates her, then abandons her. She accepts the rejection and seeks no further. Her employer, a provincial widow, underpays her and treats her like a domestic animal. She is grateful for the shelter. She goes to church and prays for everyone. Beyond this, Flaubert would have us understand the entire society of Felicite's adult life consists of two relationships with children who die in childhood and a single comforting embrace from her employer, which is never repeated. First, Felicite becomes helplessly devoted to her employer's daughter, Virginie. Then, when Virginie is sent off to school, she settles her devotion on her own nephew, Victor, whose parents send him to visit Felicite with instructions to extort gifts from her, a packet of sugar, a loaf of bread. Young Victor, however, is soon sent off to sea, where he dies of yellow fever in the Americas, and not long thereafter, Virginie dies of consumption while away at school. Both Felicite and her mistress are desolated, but their lives move on. The years pass quietly until, one summer afternoon, the two of them visit Virginie's room, which has been left intact. They clean the shelves, reorder the toys, and refold the dead girl's clothing. As Flaubert tells it, the sun shone brightly on these shabby things, showing up the stains and creases caused by the movement of her body. The sun was warm, the sky blue, a blackbird trilled, every living thing seemed to be full of sweetness and light. They found a little hat made of furry brown plush, but it was all moth-eaten. Felicite asked if she might have it. Their eyes met, filled with tears. Finally, the mistress opened her arms, the servant fell into them, and they embraced appeasing their grief in a kiss which made them equal. It was the first time in their lives, for Madame Aubin was not naturally forthcoming. Felicité was as grateful to her as if she had received a gift, and from then on loved her with dog-like devotion and religious adoration. This, in Flaubert's telling, is the single moment of companionable human solace in Felicité's existence. In its aftermath, Felicité embarks upon a career of kindness. She stands in the doorway dispensing cider to passing soldiers. She looks after cholera victims and Polish refugees, assists derelicts, and attends to the dying. And it is in this section of the narrative, as is obvious above, that the tone goes strange, as if Flaubert, appalled by the image of his own vanquished innocence, cannot withhold his anger at the neediness of Felicité's generosity, at the spectacle of her giving so much back in return for so little, and finally, at the fact that nothing remains of Felicité's life, as silence, darkness, and old age close around her, but the dubious companionship of a third-hand pet, an obnoxious parrot named Lulu.
Pantormo's Rainbow. This could never happen today, so you'll have to believe me when I tell you that I made it all the way into sixth grade before a bunch of people whom I did not know, who weren't my family and weren't the government, tried to deprive me of something I really wanted, for my own good. Up until that time, my parents had routinely deprived me of things I wanted, but they always deprived me for their own good, not mine. No, you can't go out. I'm too tired to worry about what you're doing while you're out there. And this tactic was annoying enough. For years, I attributed it to my folks' bohemian narcissism. Now I suspect they were shrewder than I thought because, finally, since my parents were always more concerned with my thoughtfulness than with my goodness, I grew up well assured that I could decide what was good for me and maybe get it if I could get away with it. So I was shocked by my first encounter with communitarian righteousness, all the more shocked because at that point in the life of our family, things were really looking up. We had just escaped air-conditioned custody in this lily-white cookie-cutter suburb of North Dallas and moved to Santa Monica to a house right under the Palisades between the Pacific Coast Highway and the beach. The house was the quintessence of coolness. There was a big deck on the second floor where we could sit and gaze off across the Pacific toward China. There was a white brick wall around the house, low in front and high in back, covered with bougainvillea. There were hydrangea bushes and hardly hibiscus in the front yard, Honeysuckles along the side wall where a small yard ran, a mimosa tree in the front and a wisteria in the back, and because of the wall and the breeze off the ocean, we could crank the windows open and let the house fill up with colored light, cool air, and the smell of flowers. Died and gone to heaven. That's the only way to describe it. After creepy Prissy Dallas, the escalation of sensory and social information was so overwhelming that I would lie in bed at night, in the sweet darkness, listening to the tracks rumbling on the PCH and the murmur of the surf on the sand, and literally giggle. This was just so much, and it was all so cool. I had black friends at school, like my dad's jazz buddies. I got to be the only Gentile in this kooky benign birth Boy Scout troop down in Venice, reformed. Whenever I wanted, I could just walk out the glass front door with my dog, Darwin the Beagle, and slog through the sand down to the ocean. Or we could turn left and stroll down to the Santa Monica Pier, where there was a dark pool hall with surfer criminals in residence. Or we could wander past the pier to Muscle Beach, where multitudes of semi-naked women love to pet Herr Darwin. About once a month, on Sunday afternoon, we would pile in the car and tool down to Hermosa or Redondo to listen to jazz music, and every Saturday morning, my brother and sister and I would climb up the concrete stairs to the Palisades, or scramble up, commando-style, through the ice plant and make our way over to the Criterion for the Kitty Cartoon Festival. Then, there we would sit for three hours, happy as clams, communing with Donald Duck, 
Bugs Bunny, the Roadrunner, and Tom and Jerry, just fucking blown away. And this, it turned out, is what the three ladies wanted to talk to us about. They showed up at Santa Monica Elementary about four months after we got there and set up shop in the lunchroom. There was a crackly announcement on the speaker in homeroom that said if we wanted to talk to them, we would be excused from class to do it. So, naturellement, everyone did. When my time came, I was marched down the hall to the lunchroom and ushered to a seat across from this lady wearing a blue suit and pearls, just like June Cleaver. She had a three-ring binder and a bunch of papers on the table in front of her, and since the table was kid-sized, she looked really big, looming behind it like a Charlie Ray lady. When I was seated, she looked up with a big smile, called me Davy, and asked me if I liked animated cartoons. I knew then I had made a terrible mistake, but what could I do? I said yes, I liked cartoons a lot, and that my name was Dave. She smiled again, not meaning it this time, and persevered. And what about Donald Duck, she asked. Did I like Donald Duck? Yes, I liked Donald Duck, I told her, although I withheld my opinion that the duck was the only Disney character who had any soul, any edge, that he was sort of the dizzy Gillespie of Disney characters. This was not the sort of insight one shared with June Cleaver. Well then, she said, what did I think about Donald's relationship with his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie? Did it bother me that he screamed at them all the time? Did this frighten me? Did it, perhaps, remind me of my mom or dad? She looked at me solemnly, solemnly, expectantly. I wanted to tell her that, first, Donald Duck was a cartoon. Second, he was an animal, a duck. And finally, he was only about this tall. But I couldn't. I could tell from the penetration of her gaze that she wasn't really interested in ducks, and I felt my face getting hot. My inquisitor smiled faintly, triumphantly, taking this blush as a telltale sign of guilt, which it wasn't. I felt like a downed American pilot in the clutches of the Gestapo, determined to protect the secrets of his freedom. Clearly, this lady wanted to know stuff about my parents, and since, in all my peregrinations through five states and thirteen grammar schools, I had never met any other adults who were even remotely like my mom and dad. I was dedicated to concealing their eccentricity, because it had its perks. I had seen enough of my friends' home lives to know this. According to their parents, my parents let me run wild. I got to do things that my friends never could, because my parents were weird. But they were not cool like Donald Duck. My dad was cool and poetic, like me, I thought, wrongly. And my mom was not cool at all. She was serious, high-strung, and fiercely ironic. Like Joan Crawford, always bustling around, painting bad paintings in the back room, and reading books while she cooked dinner. 
setting the occasional paperback aflame, always starting up little businesses and telling me stuff about the Maynard Keynes or Karl Marx when she gave me my allowance. Keynes and Marx, I should note, marked the poles between which my mom's sensibility flickered on a daily, nay hourly basis, for reasons that were not always apparent. This made things exciting, since you never quite knew if you were dealing with the sky-walking entrepreneur or the hard-eyed revolutionary. My dad was more reliable in the realm of fiscal theory. He thought money was something you turned into music, and that music, ideally, was something that you turned into money. It rarely worked out that way, but in this at least, we were of one mind. Anyway, that was my folks. Donald and Daisy, they weren't, but neither were they Ward and June, so I was scared and covetous of my perks as an outlaw child. I didn't know quite how to respond, and then, amazingly, I did. I told the truth. Donald Duck, I said, was not like my mom or dad. He was like my dog, Darwin the Beagle, excitable but lovable. Like whenever people would walk by in front of our house, Darwin would just explode, squawking and baying and bouncing along the brick wall until they went past. And since the beach sidewalk in front of our house was a well-traveled thoroughfare, Darwin was one busy beagle. But when you yelled at him to stop, he just stopped and walked over to you, tilting his head and giving you a look so that you had to give him a big hug. The giant lady just looked at me, but not the way Darwin did. She didn't move. She sat there like a statue and didn't blink. She didn't write anything down. She just looked. And now I was pissed, because I had given her a great answer. I knew this because, after 13 grammar schools, I knew how to deliver a professional, precocious answer. How to build these extended point-by-point -point analogies that boosted your score on the tests they gave you when you came to a new school. But June Cleaver wasn't buying. She turned over a piece of paper and asked me about the Roadrunner cartoons. Did I like them? Yes, I did. Did I identify with the Roadrunner or the Coyote? Again, I wanted to tell her that I didn't identify with cartoons. They were just cartoons. But in truth, I sympathized with the coyote, so I said, Wily Coyote. Wrong, clearly wrong again, from the look on her face. But I was committed, and I wanted to win, so I pressed on. I identified with the coyote, I said, like a pitiful slut, because he was always sending off in the mail for stuff from acne that didn't work. Like when I sent off for that Lone Ranger badge and secret decoder, and when it came, it was just this dumb piece of cardboard. Again, I considered this a very suave, precocious kid answer, but again, nothing. She didn't write anything down, and I couldn't believe it. I was flunking a quiz on cartoons, so I withdrew into sullen hostility. This was my standard response to intransigent adults. My little brother, on the other hand, being a little brother, invariably turned silky sycophant, so I have no doubt that a few hours later he was sitting there smiling away at June Cleaver, saying, yes, our home was pretty much a satanic cauldron. 
I folded my arms and stuck out my lower lip. June turned the page and asked me if I liked Tom and Jerry. A testy nod from little Davy. And was I ever, perhaps, frightened by the violence? She asked emphatically. A moment of thought and then, with an edge of icy sarcasm that would have impressed even my mom, I said, Oh yeah, I'm always terrified. And she wrote this down. Thus, I discovered virtue's invulnerability to contextual irony. And I couldn't take it back. For years, I would replay the scene in my head, wishing that I had said something more sophisticated, like Claude Rains in Casablanca. I am shocked. Shocked! Something like that, but I didn't, damn it. I had never felt quite so betrayed by the adult world, until six months later, when the results of this study hit the news nationwide. A rhinestone as big as the Ritz. The balcony of my apartment faces west toward the mountains, overlooking the Las Vegas Strip. So, every evening when the sky is not overcast, a few minutes after the sun has gone down, the mountains turn black, the sky above them turns this radical plum rouge, and the neon logos of the Desert Inn, the Stardust, Circus Circus, the Riviera, the Las Vegas Hilton, and Vegas World blaze forth against the Black Mountains. And every night, I find myself struck by the fact that while the strip always glitters with a reckless and undeniable specificity against the darkness, the sunset smoldering out above the mountains, every night, and without exception, looks bogus as hell. It's spectacular, of course, and even occasionally sublime, if you like sublime. But to my eyes, that sunset is always fake, as flat and gouty as a Barnett Newman, and just as pretentious. Friends of mine who visit watch this light show with different eyes. They prefer the page of the landscape to the text of neon. They seem to think it's more authentic. I, on the other hand, suspect that authenticity is altogether elsewhere that they are responding to nature's ability to mimic the sincerity of a painting, that the question of the sunset and the strip is more a matter of one's taste in duplicity. One either prefers the honest fakery of the neon or the fake honesty of the sunset. The undisguised artifice of culture or the cultural construction of authenticity the genuine rhinestone, finally, or the imitation pearl. Herein I take my text for the tragic comedy of Liberace and the anomaly of his amazing museum. As its emblem, I cite my favorite objet in his collection, its keystone, in fact, the secret heart and sacred, sacred arc of Las Vegas itself the world's largest rhinestone, 115,000 carats, revolving in a circular vitrine, dazzling us all with its plangent banality. It weighs 50.6 pounds and is fabricated of pure lead glass. 
It was manufactured by a Swarovski gem company, the rhinestone people of Vienna. Where else? And presented to Liberace as a token of appreciation for his patronage. For the virtual fields of less substantial rhinestones he had acquired from them over the years to endow his costumes, his cars, his furniture, and his pianos with their ersatz spiritual dazzle. In my view, this was money well spent, for within the confines of the Liberace Museum, dazzle they certainly do. Within these three large showrooms, spaced around a shopping center on East Tropicana Boulevard, dazzle rules. Everything fake looks bona fide. Everything that Liberace created or caused to be created as a function of his shows or of his showmanship, his costumes, his cars, his jewelry, his candelabra, his pianos, shines with a crisp pop authority. Everything created as a consequence of his endeavor, like the mega rhinestone, exudes a high dollar egalitarian permission, while everything he purchased out of his rising slum kid appetite for old world charm and ancien regime legitimacy, everything real, in other words, looks unabashedly phony. Thus, in the Liberace Museum, to paraphrase Ad Reinhardt, authenticity is something you bump into while you're backing up to look at something that interests you. And there is much of interest there, because Liberace was a very interesting man. He did interesting things. When I think of him today, I like to imagine him in his Palm Springs home, sitting before his most priceless antique, a full tilt Rococo inlaid and ormolude Louis XV desk, once owned by Tsar Nicholas II. He is wearing his Vegas-tailored Tsar Nicholas uniform. He said he never wore his costumes off stage, but you know he did. He is making out his Christmas list. He was a fool for Christmas. There is another handsome young hill hillbilly, as his mother called him, lounging nearby. In this scene, everything is real. The entertainer, the hillbilly, the white furry shag carpet, the Vegas czarist uniform, the red ink on the Christmas list. Even Palm Springs is real. Everything is real except for that silly desk, which is fake just for his owning it just for his wanting to own it. Fake, finally, for his not understanding his own radicality. He had, after all, purchased the 1962 Rolls-Royce Phantom V Landau out in the driveway, one of seven ever made, then made it disappear, let it dissolve into a cubist dazzle of reflected desert by completely covering it with hundreds of thousands of tiny mirrored mosaic tiles. In a gesture comparable to Rauschenberg erasing a de Kooning. But Lee didn't get that. He was an innocent, a pop naïf, but he was more than that. 
More prominently, Liberace was, without doubt and in his every facet, a genuine rhinestone, a heart without malice, whose only flaw was a penchant for imitation pearls, a certifiable neon icon, a light unto his people, with an inexplicable proclivity for phony sunsets. Bad taste is real taste, of course, and good taste is the residue of someone else's privilege. Liberace cultivated them both in equal parts and often to disastrous effect. But if by his reactions, his antiques and his denials, he reinforced a tattered and tatty tradition of old world respectability, then by his actions, his shows and his showmanship that showed what could not at the time be told he demonstrated to my generation the power of subversive theatricality to make manifest attitudes about sex and race and politics that could not, just for the mo love, be explicitly avowed. In Liberace's case, they were never avowed. He never came out of the closet. He lived in it like the grand hypocrite that he was, and died in it, of a disease he refused to acknowledge. But neither, in fact, did Wilde come out of it, and he, along with Swinburne and their Belle Epoque cronies, probably invented the closet as a mode of subversive public-private existence. Nor did Noel Coward come out of it. He tricked it up with the smoke and mirrors of leisure class ennui and cloaked it in public school double entendre. What Liberace did do, however, was Americanize the closet, democratize it, fit it out with transparent walls, take it up on stage, and demand our complicity in his open secret. In-crowd innuendo was not Liberace's game. Like a black man in blackface, he took it to the limit and reveled in the imper impertinence of his pseudo-masquerade. He would come striding onto the stage in a costume that was, in his description, just one tuck short of drag. He would stop under the big light, do a runway turn, and invite the audience to, hey, look me over. Then, flinging his arms upward in a fountain gesture, like a demented Polish-Italian diva, he would shoot his hip, wink, and squeal. I hope y'all like it. You'll paid for it. And the audience members would signify their approval and their complicity by their applause. They not only liked the dress, they were happy to have bought it for him. So, unlike Coward, whose veiled naughtiness remained opaque to those not in the know, Liberace's closet was as democratically invisible as the emperor's new clothes, and just as revolutionary. Everybody got it, but nobody said it. Even my grandfather got it, for Christ's sake. I can remember sitting before the flickering screen of an old Emerson at my grandparents' house, watching Liberace, which was one of my grandmother's programs. At one particular saccharine moment in the proceedings, my grandfather leaned forward, squinting through his cataract lenses at the tiny screen. 
A bit like Cousin Ed, ain't he? My grandfather said. Getting it, but not saying it. Yes, he is, my grandmother said, with an exasperated sniff. And just as nice a young man, I'm sure. She got it too. She didn't say it either. And my point here is that if my grandmother and grandfather, no cosmopolitans they, got it, if they perceived in Vladzio Valentino Liberace's performance, in his longing gaze into the television camera, a covert acknowledgement of his own sexuality, and if they, country people to the core, covertly accepted it in him, then the closet as a social modality was, even then, on the verge of obsolescence. All that remained was for Liberace and the people who accepted him to say the words. But for the most part, they never did, and some, recalcitrant to the last, never have. Those who got it and didn't accept it, however, never stopped yelping. Liberace's career, from <laughs> first to last, was beleaguered by Snickers, slimy innuendo, and plain invective with regard to his sexuality and his bad taste. The two, perhaps not surprisingly, seem so inextricably linked in attacks on his persona that you get the feeling they are, somehow, opposite sides of the same coin. At any rate, he was so regularly attacked for dramatizing his sexual deviation while suppressing the formal deviations of Chopin and Liszt that you get the impression, had he purveyed a little more difficult art, he would have been cut a little more slack with regard to his behavior. He chose not to do either, and, as a consequence, if Liberace had been a less self-confident figure, a more fragile and self-pitying soul, it would all be too easy now to cast him in the loser's role, as a tragic and embattled sexual outlaw. But beneath the ermines and rhinestones, Vladzir Liberace was a tough cookie and a high roller, a positive thinker and an American hero. He came to the table to take away the money, so he cashed in the invective and, in his own immortal phrase, cried all the way to the bank. His response to the virulent accusations that dogged his progress was always impudent passive aggression. Aggrieved, tearful categorical denials followed immediately by further and even more extravagant behavior. So, by the end, he was gliding through the show places of the Western world with his handsome young hillbillies in tow, wearing that outrageous denial like an impregnable, invisible shield, like an old bootlegger smuggling legal booze. <laughs> he continued to brandish the hypocrisies that he himself had had helped make obsolete just for the thrill of it. Honesty is nice, they say, but transgression is sexier. So, in his final days, he must, like Wilde, have decried the decay of lying. It was what he did best, and over the years, he took some shots for it, the best and most lucrative of which he took on his first tour of the British Isles in 1956, 
at the peak of his television and movie celebrity. In the autumn of that year, he and his manager Seymour Heller decided to skim a little cash off his brimming European popularity, and so set sail with Mom and Brother George in tow on the Queen Mary for an initial round of engagements in London. His reception, as they say in show business, both fulfilled his wildest dreams and confirmed his worst suspicions. He was greeted by Southampton. He was greeted at Southampton by a squadron of press and a gaggle of cheering fans, all of whom trooped aboard the chartered Liberace Special for the train ride to Waterloo. There, his reception in volume and hysteria outstripped anything hitherto experienced in the category of pop celebrity welcomings. An unnerving crush of little old ladies and teenage bobby soxers screamed, giggled, fainted, waved signs, and scattered paper rose petals, thoughtfully provided in his path. Chauffeurs and footmen bowed as his party approached the pair of Daimler's rented to whisk them to their hotel. Then, as he was about to step into one of the limousines, a reporter shouted above the crowd, Do you have a normal sex life? Liberace, looking blandly, back over his shoulder, said, Yes, do you? That night at the Royal Festival Hall, he was greeted by hostile pickets outside. Down with Liberace! and by a standing-room audience inside that reacted to his every remark with enthusiastic shrieks and shouts and responded to every number with thunderous and unruly cheers. The press reaction, needlessly to say, was uniformly uncomplimentary, ranging from bored, cowardesque dismissal, a wave of the napkin. Take it away, please, it's corked to hostility that bordered on panic. The masterpiece of this latter category was produced by Cassandra William Connor for the tabloid Daily Mirror with a national circulation of 4.5 million. I quote it at length here because it is world-class screed, but also because I would like to think that in its little way, it changed the world. He is the summit of sex, the pinnacle of masculine, feminine, and neuter. Everything that he, she, and it can ever want. I spoke to men on this newspaper who have met every celebrity coming from America for the past 30 years. They said that this deadly, winking, sniggering, snuggling, chromium-plated, scent-impregnated, luminous, quivering, giggling, fruit-flavored, mincing ice-covered heap of mother love has had the biggest reception and impact on London since Charlie Chaplin arrived at the same station, Waterloo, on September 12, 1921. He reeks with emetic language that can only make grown men long for a quiet corner, an aspidistra, a handkerchief, and the old heave-ho, Without doubt, he is the biggest sentimental vomit of all time, slobbering over his mother, winking at his brother, and counting the cash at every second. This superb piece of calculating candy floss 
has an answer for every situation. Nobody since Amy Sample McPherson has surveyed a bigger, richer, and more varied slag heap of lilac-colored hokum. Nobody anywhere has made so much money out of high-speed piano play with the ghost of Chopin gibbering at every note. <laughs> there must be something wrong with us that our teenagers longing for sex and our middle-aged matrons fed up with sex alike should fall for such a sugary mountain of jingling claptrap wrapped up in such a preposterous clown. <laughs> Liberace would ultimately sue the mirror for impugning his manhood and, all evidence to the contrary, win 40,000 pounds in damages. But what intrigues me about Cassandra's invective is the possibility that it just might mark the official beginning of the 60s, as we call them. Because Liberace had this great idea. He had touched a jangling nerve, and I like to imagine young John and Paul up in Liverpool, young Mick and Keith down in London, little David Bowie and the soon-to-be Elton John in their cloth caps, all full of ambition and working-class anger looking up from their daily mirrors with blinking light bulbs and talk balloons over their heads. At this point, I would like to think the rhetoric of closet homosexuality as practiced by Wild, Coward, and Liberace is on the verge of being appropriated for a broader attack upon the status quo, demonstrating the fact that it was never in the hands of its masters, a language of disguise, but a rhetoric of deniable disclosure. A language of theatrical transgression that had its own content. This strategy of theatrical subversion would eventually resonate throughout the entire culture and would end, I suggest, very near where it began with Wilde, whose effeminacy was regarded as indicative of his dissent and cultural disaffection, rather than the other way around. By the time we reach the watershed marked by the heterosexual drag of the New York Dolls, I think, this re-reversal has taken place in American pop culture. Sexuality is no longer a mere matter of biology and whim. It means something. The battle for sexual tolerance has moved on to other, more political battlefields, and, in view of this transformation, I think we can regard the Liberace Museum as having some general historical significance beyond the enshrining of a particularly exotic entertainer. Its artifacts, genuine rhinestones, and imitation pearls alike mark an American moment, the beginning of the end of the open secret. So the cars and the costumes and the silly pianos might be seen as more than just the memorabilia of an exotic saloon singer, because they are, in fact, the tools with which Liberace took the rhetoric of the closet public, demonstrated the power of its generous duplicity, and changed the world. I would like to think that Liberace knew this, somehow, in some way, as he stood in the sunny parking lot of his Las Vegas shopping center, on Easter Sunday, 1979, with the mayor and other dignitaries in attendance and opened his amazing museum. Maybe it's sentimental of me, but I would like to think that, as he stood there, 
The guy had some sense of his own authenticity. The reporters noted that he was wearing a pink, blue, and yellow checkered jacket with matching yellow shirt and slacks. A large gold cross hung around his neck and six diamond rings adorned his fingers. Welcome to the Liberace Museum, he cried to the assembled multitude. I don't usually wear diamonds in the afternoon, but this is a special occasion. The birth of the big, beautiful art market. In the beginning was the car, and the car was with art, and the car was art. Thus it was in the American boondocks during the 1950s and 60s, especially for me. For me, cars were not just art, they were everything. None of the schools I attended, as we gypsied around the American West, were ever that great, nor ever quite real to me. So, such secondary education as I received, I received in the physical culture of cars. Wherever I found myself, kids bought them, talked them, drew them, and dreamed them, hopped them up and dropped them down, cruised them on the drag and dragged them on the highway, and I did too. Thus, of necessity, I learned car math and car engineering, car poli-sci and car economics, car anthropology and car beaux-arts. Even my first glimmerings of higher theory arose out of that culture. The rhetoric of image and icon, the dynamics of embodied desire, the algorithms of style change, and the ideological force of disposable income. All these came to me couched in the lingua franca of cars, arose out of our perpetual exegesis of its nuanced context and iconography. And it was worth the trouble, because all of us who partook of this discourse, as artists, critics, collectors, mechanics, and citizens, understood its politico-aesthetic implications, understood that we were voting with cars, for a fresh idea of democracy, a new canon of beauty, and a redeemed ideology of motion. We also understood that we were dissenting when we customized them and hopped them up, demonstrating against the standards of the Republic and advocating our own refined vision of power and loveliness. My own endeavors in this regard were devoted to a black 1946 Chevrolet Coupe a coral and cream 1955 Ford Victoria, a turquoise and white 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air, and a bronze lacquered 1937 Chevrolet pickup, raked with a Chevy 357 under its pinstriped hood. I bought these cars in sequence, trading one in on the next and paying out the balance with money I earned from before and after school jobs. And this was important because the guys whose folks bought them their cars tended to be dilettantes, were less inclined to know their vehicles intimately, to tear them down and put them back together at a whim, to adjust and refine their operation and iconography.
We true devotees aspired to full consciousness of our rides. There was no aspect of their technology and design whose historicity we did not comprehend, whose efficacy we had not analyzed, whose aesthetics we had not contemplated. We knew these cars and knew what they meant, and what they meant, over and above everything, was freedom. But freedom is a gem with many facets. So we pondered the halting gurgle of big V8s with racing camshafts, the rhetoric of shrouded headlights, the ethics of cherry restorations, and the proprieties of altering a vehicle's prof- profile by chopping, channeling, lowering, and raking. Thus, years before I had ever seen an official work of art, I could claim an evolved aesthetic. I could have told you, if you had asked, that I was neither minimalist nor formalist. I did not hold with the suppression of text and ornament in order to create a blank, reflective sleeve of aerodynamic color. Nor was I a modernist in the architectural sense, devoted to stripping away the cosmetic surface of a vehicle to reveal its glamorized functional apparatus. Nor was I an expressionist beguiled by Gaudi leadwork and Gaudi flame jobs. Why? Because I did not want to drive a singular autonomous work of art. I wanted to dissent, not defect. So I was always looking for something fresh and disconcerting. To borrow Edward Rouchet's expression, I wanted to achieve, huh? Wow. As opposed to, wow, huh? I wanted that subtle jolt of visual defamiliarization as a prelude to delight. So I liked appropriating decor, subtly redesigning details and trim to reconstitute the car's composition and profile. I liked enhancing dumb stuff that other guys just instinctively trashed, like the cartouche on the trunk lid. And I loved tiny pinstripes that nuanced the highlights and big engines with no high-end acoustics, just that low rumble bubbling on the edge of audibility. Like my Fender bass run through a concert stack. My optimum set of wheels then looked and sounded like a high-performance production model from a company you never fucking heard of, as if I had walked into a Dave dealership one afternoon and bought it off the showroom floor and now you wanted to buy one too. That was my idea of cool. As a consequence of this apprenticeship, my inadvertent discovery of the commercial art world of the 1960s felt just like coming home. In a twinkling, I was back where I had never been. Andy Warhol's customized Maryland's and Edward Rouchet's standardized standard stations Confirmed my aesthetic, of course, but most importantly, I knew the whole gig. The entire business of dreaming and drawing and talking and trading and buying and selling. The deep rituals of sitting around in a big room filled with disconcerting objects, chatting about them, looking at them, privately balancing your desire and your vision of America against your bank account. There were structural differences, of course, the principal one being that, 
since production was disseminated, the custom model came first in this art economy. It was clear, however, that the large institutions of the art world, like the Whitney Museum uptown and the art school out at Yale, functioned like general motors, establishing brand names, institutional agendas, and hierarchies of value out of materials provided by the custom market. I could live with this. I didn't care about it, but I could live with it, as long as Richard Bellamy and his dumpy little gallery downtown continued to function like George Barris and his custom car shop out in Los Angeles, promoting rebellion, proposing outrageous reconfigurations, and different ideas of how the world should look. So, this new world was exciting to me, not least of all because it meant that I hadn't squandered my youth, that I was bringing something to the table. I remember sitting at a table in a bar down in El Paso with Luis Jimenez one afternoon in the late 60s, saying just that, marveling at the fact that for dudes like us, who had grown up in the protean discourse of American cars, the permutations of American art from Jackson Pollock's drip paintings to Frank Stella's protractors were virtual child's play. What we did not understand as we sat there smugly sipping, sipping our dosequies was that the age of incarnate ideology was over and the Protestants had won. If we had thought about it from the perspective of old car freaks, however, we would have known and surely could have predicted that the general motors of the art world, the museums and universities, would ultimately seek to alleviate their post-market status and control the means of production. They would soon succeed in doing this by revisions in the tax code, by the expansion of public patronage, and the proliferation of graduate education, all of which eroded the distinction between art history and art now, and eroded as well the even more critical distinction between art and the liberal arts. Within 10 years, the art world was well on its way to becoming a transnational bureaucracy. Everybody had a job description and a resume. Junior professors began explaining to me that non-portable, non-object art had arisen during the 1960s as a means of conceptualizing the practice of art in response to the increasing commodification and commercialization of the art object during the post-war era. This would have been a wonderful argument if a painting by Edward Rocher or Jacques-Louis David were any less conceptual than a pile of dirt on a museum floor. Or if that pile of dirt were any less commercial for being financed by minions of the corporate state. My own experience of the facts suggested quite the reverse, that non-object, non-portable art arose in the mid-60s as a strategic reaction to a commercial reality, to wit, all the walls were full. After 15 years of the greatest and most broadly based painting market in the history of the world, every inch of available wall space was expensively inhabited by Pollocks and the Poonses, Rothkos and Rosenquists. Thus, the fashion for conceptual, documentary, and installation art arose, 
floor and drawer art, as Richard Serra called it. Over the next seven or eight years, this new art had its commercial sinecure, and no one I knew even considered the possibility that it couldn't be sold. As a dealer friend told me at the time, anyone who can't sell a handful of air with a dream in it doesn't deserve to call himself an American, much less an art dealer. This was the temper of the time. In the early 70s, however, as these new practices began to lose steam in the natural course of things, as other practices had lost steam before them, they were adopted by a whole new set of venues, by museums, kunstales, and alternative spaces across the country. First as trendy economical exhibition fodder for the provinces, and then as official non-commercial anti-art as part of a puritanical haute bourgeois institutional reaction to the increasing aesthetification of American commerce in general. Works of art, after all, had been commercial objects for 200 years, but commercial objects like the cars we loved had only become recently works of art, and they did so in response to the market conditions that would ultimately create the post-industrial world. As Warhol was fond of telling us, the strange thing about the 60s was not that Western art was becoming commercialized, but that Western commerce was becoming so much more artistic. So, to return to the lingua franca of cars, we should remember that America's industrial base, and its automotive industry particularly, came out of World War II in great shape. Its production potential was greatly expanded, its technology much improved, and its facilities unscathed by the conflict. Its products, however, were no longer being consumed by violence. So it soon became clear that if these enterprises were to continue at post-war production levels with pre-war marketing and design strategies, they would almost immediately outsupply demand and effectively put themselves out of business. Thus, American industry found itself facing the challenge that has confronted every artist since Watteau, that of a finite, demanding market for a necessarily overabundant supply of speculative products. The problem is this. As any dealer will, will tell you, it is perfectly possible for any artist with decent work habits to produce more work in three or four years then there are buyers worldwide who might possibly acquire them ever. The pool of probable purchasers is even tinier. So the logic is inescapable. Somebody sometime is going to have to buy more than one. In the years following World War II, American mercantile culture found itself in exactly the same situation. In response to this challenge, those enterprises that survived completely transformed their design, production, and marketing strategies to an artistic model. First, companies introduced a hierarchy of lines. As an artist might produce prints, drawings, and paintings, American manufacturers began introducing economy and luxury lines to bracket their mid-range product thus creating the possibility of the consumer moving up without moving out. 
Second, and again like artists in the 19th century, these manufacturers began designing visual obsolescence into their products by institutionalizing style change. In this way, manufacturers hope to create cyclical demand for their products by shifting emphasis from their value or utility to their extrinsic currency by having one style supplant another. And finally, American business stopped advertising products for what they were or for what they could do and began advertising them for what they meant as sign systems within the broader culture emphasizing what every collector wants to know, who owned them and where they were owned. Thus, rather than producing and marketing infinitely replicable objects that adequately served unchanging needs, American commerce began creating finite sets of objects that embodied ideology for a finite audience at a particular moment objects that created desire rather than fulfilling needs. There is nothing more or less than an art market, or rather, this is nothing more or less than an art market. If you don't think so, price out a 1965 Ford Thunderbird. The Leonardo of this new art market, or precisely its Monet, Um, was an ex-custom car designer from Hollywood named Harley Earl, who headed the design division at General Motors during the post-war period. Earl's most visible and legendary contributions to American culture were the Cadillac Tailfin, based on the tail assembly of the P-38 fighter plane, and the pastel paint job, design innovations that, when combined, as they often were, simultaneously masculinized and feminized the American automobile, translating it into a distinct, all-purpose polymorphous object of desire in the best tradition of the Rococo. Most importantly, however, Earl invented the four-year style change cycle linked to the platonic hierarchy of General Motors cars, and this revolutionary dynamic created the post-industrial world. Basically, what Earl invented was a market situation in which the consumer moved up the status ladder within the cosmology of General Motors products. From Chevrolet to Pontiac to Buick to Oldsmobile to Cadillac as the tail fin or some other contagious motif moved down the price ladder from Cadillac to Chevrolet year by year as styles changed incrementally. From the viewpoint of production, this sliding dynamic greatly mitigated the cost problems that traditionally proved the downfall of rapid style change in mass-produced products. To wit, the accelerated obsolescence of hugely expensive production technology. In Earl's scheme, the tailfin technology, say, that had become stylistically obsolete on the Cadillac, could be retooled and used to produce Oldsmobiles, then Buicks, then Pontiacs, then Chevrolets, by which time it had been totally redesigned. From a marketing point of view, it was heaven. 
It bound consumers to the parent company and invited them to make incremental steps up the price ladder as that exquisite finny grain grail gradually descended toward their aspiring spirit. As a consequence, the commercial art that advertised American commodities during this period, 1950-1970, took on the qualities and functions that religious art, courtly art, and official art served in other areas. It became a theater and palimpsest of the competing values and contexts that made the wheels go round, a contextualizing discourse for the democracy of objects we all inhabit. Like the courtly, religious, and official art of the past, then, these images functioned in aid of commerce, society, religion, and official policy, illustrating without actually embodying those particular values. The task of embodying cultural values in all their multifarious complexity has fallen in this century to art objects like Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, the Brillo boxes, or the pink Cadillac. These objects propose for moral and monetary investment those redeemed values that are distorted and submerged by the advocacy of the market or the institution. Today, of course, it is all an art market, the whole of American commerce. We can't make a toaster anymore, a VCR, or even a decent faucet, but we can create desire. We can make fetching footwear, beautiful games, exquisite motorcycles, hot TV, great rock and roll records, and dazzling movies. Such artifacts constitute our principal contributions to global commerce. The alternative discourse of embodied dissent, however, has all but disappeared. Those customized and hopped up objects and images we might expect that demonstrate against the standards of the Republic and advocate their own refined vision of power and loveliness are nowhere to be seen. Since power and loveliness themselves are presumed to be at issue, as if they might be talked away along with the image, the object, and commerce itself, as evidence of human vanity, so that art might more closely approach the paper body of bureaucracy. In today's art world, then, in place of the ongoing struggle for refinement and redemption, we have premillennial renunciation. In place of the tumultuous forum, we have the incestuous cloister. And in place of customized art, we have an academic art, which, like the commercial, courtly, religious, and official art of yesteryear, is content to advertise its pre-approved corporate values and agendas. Why? What happened? My own suspicion is that something new came into being and could not be let to stand. So let me return for a moment to my conversation with Luis Jimenez in that bar in El Paso in the late 60s. On that afternoon, while we were talking about cars and art, Luis explained to me that his earliest ideas of becoming an artist had come from watching the glimmering lowriders cruising the streets of Juarez and El Paso. They seemed to him, he said, the ultimate synthesis of painting and sculpture, the ultimate accommodation of solidity and translucency, 
and more importantly for Louise, they seemed a bridge between the past and the future, because he recognized the visual language of the Baroque and these magical automobiles, in the way the smooth folds of steel and the hundreds of coats of transparent lacquer caught the light and held it as the cars slipped through the bright streets like liquid color. Like Caravaggio meets Bernini, on wheels. Now, let me carry Louise's argument one step further and suggest the precise manner in which these wonderful cars fit into the visual tradition that Hispanic America inherited from the age of the Baroque. First, we must remember that the technique of glazing transparent color was invented in 15th century Italy to do one thing, to paint the body of Christ as a physical, being filled with light. This image of luminous materiality stood as a metaphor for the central tenet of Western Catholicism, that Christ was the word of God made flesh, the incarnate word, a creature who had lived and suffered and experienced temptation in corporeal form and died a real death. This is the central message of the Eucharist and of the polychrome sculptures that still populate the churches and homes of Hispanic America. After World War II, however, Chicano car cultists in the American Southwest began secularizing this central sacramental metaphor, creating gleaming, iconic automobiles that embodied not of the word of God, but the freedom and promise of effortless mobility, honoring the traditions of democratic America that they had inherited as well. Then, under the aegis of custom car designer Harley Earl, Detroit would begin to incorporate the principles of lowrider design into its products, and in doing so, effect one of the great iconogra iconographic syntheses in the history of Western culture. The masters of American industry would embody, in the Catholic language of material light, of chrome and polychrome, the disembodied intellectual tenets of the Enlightenment, the values of Protestant America's founding fathers. Thereafter, the emblem of the automobile as an embodiment of the promise of America, as an icon of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, would permeate the entire culture, Catholic and Protestant alike, and this metaphor of corporeal intelligence would be reinforced throughout the 1950s and 60s by other proliferating iconographies of embodied light. By, by the luminous materiality of new plastics and technicolor film, and by refinements in color photography. Then, amazingly, the metaphor would be confirmed by the new science of genetics, which would inadvertently prove these antique popes to have been right in their wrongness by demonstrating scientifically that we are all, indeed, the genetic word made flesh. So this is my idea. The historical confluence of accident, insight, commerce, and iconography in post-war America created the 1960s as America's transcendent Mediterranean moment gave birth to the big, beautiful art market as an embodied discourse of democratic values that partook in equal parts 
of the Eucharist and the Stock Exchange. Thus, the United States emerged from the 60s as the only nation in the history of the world with a freely elected, fully embodied iconography of promise. And we might have one yet, I suspect, if the sages of Puritan New England had chosen that moment to do what they desperately wished to do, succeed from a union they saw sinking into the mire of idolatry and democracy. Vices they might just tolerate in politics, but never in culture. Never. So, what we got was a secular reformation, a return of the word at the expense of the flesh, and a new jihad against idolaters, now guilty of commodification. The old quarrel between grace and works was reconstituted as a new quarrel between theory and practice. Once again, we drove the money changers from the temple of art, which was not a temple, nor ever had been, not in America, where it had always been a secular discourse in the form of market. Even so, academic civil servants of the word, horrified by the image and scandalized by looking, mounted an attack on them, both on behalf of their own practice, a critique of representation, which, at its heart, was a critique of representative government, bald advocacy for a new civil service of cultural police. And for what transgression did we suffer all this theological nitpicking and sensory deprivation? Well, a bunch of citizens made some objects that other citizens thought looked great. Still other citizens thought they could make them look even greater and manifested their dissent by customizing these objects. Other citizens thought these new objects did indeed look greater. They argued with the advocates of the previous objects, and since these objects didn't do anything, weren't worth anything, and came without labels or instructions, people were actually arguing about the values they perceived to be embodied in these objects, values they held dearly enough to argue about and invest in. It was, in fact, Nothing more dangerous than a democratic forum of free opinion that, in its protean liveliness and freeform contingency, could only expand, did expand, in fact, and persists today in all our quotidian discussions of popular art in this nation. In the world of high art, however, a bunch of tight-assed, puritanical, haute-bourgeois intellectuals simply legislated customized art out of existence in a fury of self-important resentment. Because Hollywood trash like Harley Earl and lowriders like Louise Jimenez became conversant with the economics of their beautiful, powerful game. A Life in the Arts When a friend of John O'Hara's called to inform him of George Gershwin's death, O'Hara responded appropriately, shouting into the phone, I don't have to believe it if I don't want to. Would that I could have been so willful. When Terry Allen called me in San Diego with the news that Chet Baker was dead, I just said, ah, shit, and hung up. Because I believed it, and believing it, I sat there for a long time in that cool, shadowy room, looking out at the California morning.
I stared at the blazing white stucco wall of the bungalow across the street. I gazed at the cocoa palm rising above its dark green roof. Three chrome green renegade parrots had taken up residence among its dusty fronds. They squawked and flickered in the sunshine. Above and beyond the bungalow and the palm, the slate gray Pacific rose to the pale line of the horizon, and this vision of ordinary paradise seemed an appropriate funereal vista for the ruined prince of West Coast cool. So I sat Shiva for Baker in that quiet room, acutely aware of my own breathing, aware as well that I had been listening to Baker breathe through his trumpet and through the language for more than 30 years. Now, suddenly, Chat Baker wasn't breathing anymore, and I missed him immediately. In more ways than I could count, he had been the secret sharer and unwitting accomplice in the best and most disgusting of my adventures. I only met him once in the 1970s in a little pub called Strikers in Manhattan. That night, he moved and talked like some kind of noir athlete, at once tough and passive, obsessed with little things, a hangnail, a fever blister on his lip, the physical business of making music. Beyond that, he just seemed out there, untroubled in any serious way, comfortably embarked on his own secret journey. Now, knowing that he was dead, I realized that somehow, day in, day out, as I had gone about my own fugitive endeavors, just knowing that Chet was out there too, somewhere in the drift, had been a kind of validation. Just knowing that someone else, more gifted than I, whom I respected, had made the same foolish, draconian decisions and made it work, had made it better. Baker was, after all, the first artist whose work I had discovered, the first artist whom I had never heard of, whom no one had told me about, who spoke to me purely out of the air, whose work I was forced to divine by the pure logic of sense. That was in 1954. As I did every day after school and before my paper route, I was slipping through the jazz albums in Sumter Bruton's record shop when I came across a Chet Baker quartet album and decided on impulse to buy it because I thought the cover was cool. It was, I must admit, an early abex effort of Robert Irwin's. I took the record up to the counter, and Sumter, who was a jasmine himself, approved of my purchase. So I took the record home and was hardly through Happy Little Sunbeam before I realized that for once, finally, I had found my own place. My dad had been a jazz musician, an old swing guy with aspirations to bebop. My friends were all hillbillies. Chet Baker's music was in some new place between them. It was horizontal music that flowed in a steady groove and sang those haunting double lines that, from Bob Will's twin fiddles to the Allman Brothers' twin guitars, put unrequited sadness into country music. Chet, however, infected that Oklahoma lonesome with LA City Lights' Tristesse, so the songs seemed to glide past me like lowriders down Pico Boulevard, sleek and self-contained, with the fleet glimmer of the city chasing down their dark reflective surfaces. 
and it did swing with the shrewd harmonics of hard bop, but without its hyperkinetic posturing. Everybody else, I realized, was playing jazz. Chet Baker was playing the song and, innervated as I was by the ornament of bebop, this seemed like an incredibly neat idea to me. So I went back to the Sumters the next day and bought Chet Baker Sings, my all-time favorite record, and, not coincidentally, the best makeout record in the history of modern romance. I played it all the time, morning and night, and it spoke to me then of a special kind of elegiac, elegiac cool. It dispensed with all pretension to musical heroism, without repudiating the idea of heroism him itself. It muffled the sentiment of the sung lyrics without denying the possibility that somewhere at some time for someone, such sentiments might have had a certain validity. Today, having written some songs myself, I see that Baker knew what all song songwriters know, what singers like Judy Garland and Patsy Cline and Karen Carpenter knew most profoundly, that all songs are sad songs, born as they are on the insubstantial substance of our fleeting breath. So, Chet Baker sings, sang the quintessential post-war white boy blues, but it did more than that. By abandoning the prevailing rhetoric of spontaneity for a thoughtful kind of subversive premeditation, Baker's improvisational strategy spoke less of fashionable attitudes than it did of a new way of doing things, a new ethos of living into the world, one that a few years later would characterize the works of Edward Rocher another Oklahoma boy gone California. It was a reversal of priorities. It devalued the quest for instantaneous epiphany in favor of an ongoing temporal discourse. Looking back on it now, I knew I learned to write prose, or how I wanted prose to sound, by listening to that long, the long lapidary lines on that record. Because this is what Baker is always doing, transforming the tight, form fixe of pop music into this sensuous, elegant, paratactic prose, sotto voce, full of silences and recursive turns. I also learned about the ideological imperatives of criticism by trying to figure out why most jazz critics failed to share my enthusiasm for Baker's music. From a distance, of course, I can see that those critics, Leonard Feather, Nat Hentoff et al., afforded me my first exposure to high modernism with its cult of originality and masculine self-expression. Thus, Baker's playing was constantly derided as being derivative of Miles Davis, despite the fact that it wasn't. They were both admittedly children of Clifford Brown, whose manner they purged of vibrato and invested with breath, with a bluesy sexiness of saxophone. But Miles, being the classic abstract expressionist horn player, developed in aggressive ways that a modernist could understand, apparently leaving Baker behind. Thus, the liner notes of Baker, Baker's albums were always protesting that he could, when he wanted to, play hard and tough. Because Butch was important then. This also explains, if it doesn't excuse, 
why a critic like Feather would call Baker's singing weak-voiced, but appealing to feminine audiences. Yikes, girl stuff, say no more. With a little historical distance, it's clear that what Chet Baker did with Chet Baker Sings is not unlike what the Ramones did with their first album, simply turned every contemporary expectation on its head. As Warhol would say just a few years later, he got it exactly wrong. Most importantly, Baker reintroduced the text into jazz music as a pivot of expression. He sang those great sentimental lyrics by Larry Hart, Johnny Mercer, and Ira Gershwin, previously considered suitable only for female vocalists, but he sang them at one remove, cool and plain, acknowledging the sentiment without buying into it. Glancing at it over his shoulder, as though the window of a door closed behind him. So that what we get is not the feeling, but the memory of it. In contemporary terms, Baker does not so much perform these songs as simulate them, appropriating their complete content to his own intentions while leaving the song itself with its formal integrity unmolested. To this end, unlike most jazz renditions at that time, which tend to appropriate, at most, the melodic release, Baker plays the whole song, including the verses, in sequence, never abandoning the contrapuntal presence of the melody in his improvisation. So, while most jazz albums of the period include, at best, five long instrumentals, Chet Baker Sings is made up of 18 two and a one-half minute cuts, played and sung without any of the popular signifiers of jazz expression. There is no vibrato, no beautiful singing, and no strong statement. There are no extended solos, no range dynamics, no volume dynamics, no tempo dynamics, no expressive timber shifts, no suppression of extant melodics, no harmonic meandering, no virtuoso high-speed scales, and, in fact, very few sixteenth notes. None of the stuff, in short, that told jazz critics of the time what the player was doing and how good he was at it. All you got was the song. It is passionately articulated with lots of spaces, swinging to be sure, but played mid-tempo and mid-range, shot through with melodic and rhythmic nuance that defied notation or interpretation. Baker's album, then, was a totally other form of expression for its time, its only contemporary aesthetic analogy was in the cool economy and intellectual athletics of longboard surfing, another lost art of living in real time that may be coming back. On the morning of May 13, 1988, the body of Chesney H. Baker, 58, was found in the street beneath the window of his hotel room in Amsterdam. Clearly, he had either fallen, jumped, or was pushed, and certainly he had died as he lived, under suspicious circumstances. Suicide was ruled out by those who knew him, first because Baker's was a temperament strikingly free of envy, theatrical disappointment, and self-pity, and second because even if he had been prone to these artistic vices, he had been, for the past three or four years, been in good spirits. More than welcome in clubs all over Europe, he had been playing well, recording regularly, working often, and even occasionally getting paid for doing it. 
Just prior to his death, Baker played a triumphant solo concert in Paris with full orchestra to a full house. After the concert, he thanked the musicians and promoters for their support, signed a few autographs, and, pocketing the check, strolled out into the night. He was last seen tossing his horn case into the back of his battered Alpha and buzzing off into the Parisian traffic alone on his way to the next gig. On the evening of the morning, he was found dead in the street. He was scheduled to play a gig in Amsterdam. He was, by all accounts, looking forward to it. Narcotics were suspected in his death. They always were. Since 1957, when Baker effectively wrecked what was referred to as a promising career by getting sick on heroin, it was generally assumed, with some justification, that any altercation involving Baker was narcotics-related. It seems strange now, but looking back at the press clippings and album notes that chart Baker's career, it is clear that, even though he was far from the only jazz musician of his generation to use junk, he was the only one who was famous for it. Which is to say, he was the only one who ever lost a movie role because of it. At the time he got sick and let everybody down, Baker was 27 years old, the product of rural Oklahoma, Glendale Junior High School, the Presidio Army Band, and the University of the Night, where he studied with Charlie Parker. He had topped the downbeat polls as a trumpet player and a vocalist at 24, and once more he had a hit single with Jerry Mulgan, My Funny Valentine, an unheard of achievement for any jazz musician who wasn't Louis Armstrong or Nat King Cole. So he was an icon in progress, the next big thing, the beautiful boy, the great white hope, the next James Dean, for Christ's sake, of American pop culture. He was being considered for the role Robert Wagner would ultimately play in All the Fine Young Cannibals. But he got sick, and for some reason the idea that this serious musician, this gifted player, this protege of Charlie Parker, would submarine a movie career, would blow the chance to become a fine young cannibal, really pissed people off. It was a repudiation of everything the 1950s were about. Baker was made to pay for this transgression. For 20 years, he was hounded by journalists anxious to be there when he overdosed, and narcs anxious to bust him for trying. The narcs got a better return for their time, and Baker ended up doing some time in Italy in the 1960s. All the while, the minions and mavens of the serious jazz world stood on the sidelines, exasperated that, on the one hand, that Baker refused to do something historical like Miles, that they could write about and teach in their college courses, and annoyed, on the other hand, that he continued to play so beautifully that he refused to quit and be the bum they wished he was. It really pissed them off, Lowell George told me once, that they couldn't learn anything from Chet's playing, not anything they could teach. All they could learn was that he could do it, and they couldn't. It was all about thinking and breathing in real time, and they couldn't grasp that. It had too much to do with life, with how you live in time. 
So Baker didn't have a career or make any of the noises that signify musical history, but he kept on playing. Then, in 1967, in San Francisco, six junkies jumped him up for his stash and beat his teeth out, a death blow for a trumpet player. But Baker pumped gas for two years, entered a methadone program, got some new teeth, and taught himself how to play again. He continued to play, mostly in Europe, on the horse and off it for the rest of his life. Still, his obituaries and posthumous liner notes inevitably speak of wasted talent, problems with drugs, and lost opportunities. To be a cannibal, one assumes. Even today, the aura of romantic ruin will not go away. When an American ducks the golden ring rather than grabbing it, there has got to be a pathological explanation, and drugs were it. Baker would have understood this, I think, since he so casually reversed the priorities of artistic myth-making in our culture. He wanted people to understand what he played. He didn't care a damn if they understood how he lived. Further, all the crocodile tears on the occasion of his death betray a certain level of resentment on the part of the jazz establishment at Baker's continuing musical credibility. He had, after all, continued to play and find new listeners in private in Europe, while all their fusion gods were playing pop sessions, writing rap charts, or teaching theory in ivy-covered colleges. Thus, in the days immediately following his death, a good deal was made of the tragic implications of a doperic found in Baker's room. When an autopsy revealed that Baker was completely clean at the time of his death, the police pronounced themselves baffled, which is understandable, since fewer policemen than you would think have ever been junkies. They would be baffled as well by the fact that I carry around in my luggage a four-gram bottle with a crud still baked in the bottom, as a reminder that there is no statute of limitation on stupidity. During the past few years, however, with the embarrassment of Baker's sly, resilient presence out of the way, his music has suffered a major comeback, as has his image. See Chris Isaacs. It would be nice if this amounted to a serious reevaluation of Baker's endeavor, but I don't think this is the case. The music is still good. It always has been. It's just now that Baker is dead, he can be assumed to have paid his debt to society for refusing to worship the twin gods of stardom and historical development. In the popular ethos, his life is really tragic now, meaning he doesn't get paid for the record you buy. In fact, Baker's life was in no sense a tragic one, nor was his talent wasted or unappreciated. Given the opportunity, I'm sure he would say of himself, as he said of Charlie Parker, he had a very happy life. He lived 58 years, recorded 60 albums, played 10,000 gigs for millions of people, and died with gigs left to play, thus deserving the freelancer's ultimate epitaph. If this dude wasn't dead, he could still get work. Finally, by refusing to have a career or to make history, he managed to do both and in the end achieved that rarest of prizes. He had a life in the arts in real time. But there is more to it than that because Baker's music and his way of making music 
has had its influence beyond the parochial world of high modernist jazz theory. It provides the classic model for a new tradition of steady state postmodern popular music, which is probably best exemplified by Lowell George's Little Feet and Lou Reed's Velvet Underground. These bands operated on Baker's premise that the song plays the music and the music plays the player and that consequently the song as played is not a showcase for the player's originality, but a momentary acoustic community in which the players breathe and think together in real time, adding to the song's history without detracting from its integrity, leaving it intact to be played again. The thing you learn, Lou Reed told me in an interview, is that popular music is easy. The song will play itself. So all you need to do is make it sing a little, make it human, and not fuck it up. My Waymar. In the nightmare version of my life, I spend 25 years as the third person at this interminable dinner party at an east side restaurant. My fellow diners are Karl Marx and Count Montesquieu, who, in this nightmare, are very comfortable, companionable, and well-dressed. Karl, by this time, is a distinguished professor at Duke, pulling down something in the low six figures, just for showing up in his beard. The Count is not doing quite so well, but he has his MacArthur and a stipend from the French government to keep the wolf from his lacquered door. So they are having a wonderful time at this dinner, waiting heartily through course after course of delectable goodies and slurping bottle after bottle of primo bubbly. As they eat and drink, they talk endlessly about art and what it meant and could mean, about why it doesn't mean what it that anymore and can't on account of mercantile society, the banality of it all. From time to time, they toast the coming apocalypse and launch witticisms at the vulgarity of people in trade, glancing in my direction as they do. I am sitting off to the side, cracking breadsticks, sipping mineral water, and making notes on the tablecloth. Carl and the Count know, of course, that I am a petit bourgeois tradesperson. They know that in order to buy more breadsticks, I must go home that night and write something I can sell. My money-grubbing disgusts them. So in this stream, I wonder, is this why they are speaking so volubly? Why they are lingering so late over the remains of their repast? Is this why I am worrying about the check? Will I be stuck with it again? Do these guys always get to walk? Is this how they afford their wonderful shoes? I don't know, but this is my nightmare, and barring the unlikely event of something millennial happening at the millennium, it promises to continue unabated. There is nothing to be done about it. In an elite culture in which failure signifies injustice, the pleasures and contingencies of commerce cannot be defended, nor can any point upon which radicals and snobs agree be seriously contested. So lately, I have contented myself with trying to understand how I could have come to see things so differently. 
how my own experience in commercial culture could have been so different. How that culture could have afforded me and so many of my co-conspirators refuge from the very injustices that are regularly attributed to it. After giving it some thought, I have come, decided to blame it all on my old professor, Walter Volbach, who was the greatest of many gifts the Third Reich bestowed upon my youth. Herr Volbach was a refugee professor. By the time I signed up for his seminar in Weimar Theater, he had been one for nearly 20 years, but to his credit, he was still pissed about it. Pissed about being a refugee, pissed about being stuck in Texas, and pissed, most of all, about being a professor. Because Walter Volbach was a theater guy, a third-generation, hard-nosed, German-Jew theater guy with a very low tolerance for misty bullshit. To me, he was a messenger from another world, an older world, redolent with unfamiliar textures, with brighter brights and darker darks. Through him, I could glimpse the harsh antique modernity of the Weimar winter, because Herr Volbach was that world. The cut of his pre-war suit, to the crisp military cadence of his speech, to the angular vocabulary of his body language, which made him look like a mad tacton vivant. Sharp, disdainful, and irro irrevocably embedded in the thickness of the past. Volbach's father had conducted the first performance of Verdi's Falstaff, and Volbach himself had taken piano lessons as a child from Richard Strauss, whose hand, in the process of instruction, had strayed all too regularly onto young Walter's knee. As a youth, Volbach had worked at the cabarets, acting and playing the piano. Later, he had directed for Max Reinhardt and collaborated with Piscator. So, not surprisingly, Bulbach's idea of art was something flexed and rigorous, full of edges and bright lights, something smart that made your pants crackle. And he was such a tough old bird, mean as a snake when aroused, but you couldn't hate him for it. He treated you like you were supposed to get out there and do something. He told me I was a callow redneck with all the spirituality of a toilet seat, that I could possibly cure the former, but would probably have to live with the latter. But that was great. Nobody had ever told me I was anything before, so I took it to heart. I mean, Jesus, he was the real thing, and he had all the stuff. He would bring it to class in cardboard boxes, drawings, some by Gordon Craig, blocking diagrams, posters, account books, prompt scripts, photographs. I remember this brown snapshot of Volbach, Otto Deeks, and two other men standing in some dingy street. I was shocked that they were wearing suits and vests. Deeks was a pig, Volbach muttered. And I remember the day he opened a cardboard box, reached in and pulled out a large semi-automatic pistol. For a moment, he just held it in his old hand and gazed down at it, as if surprised to find it there. Then he laid the pistol on the table. Dangerous times, he murmured, and continued rummaging. The pistol lay there on the table throughout the afternoon. 
About halfway through class, however, Volbach noticed that the muzzle was pointed in our direction. He shook his head as if to reprove himself for his carelessness. Then he reached down and carefully turned the weapon, so the muzzle pointed out the window, and that was just perfect. It was a piece of theater, of course. Volbach taught his Weimar. Weimar's seminar every year, so he could hardly have been surprised to find that pistol in the box. Still, I don't think we cared or even noticed, because it was such great theater. The ominous German firearm in that beige American classroom. It gave you the idea of art for high stakes, and I cannot think of Weimar today without calling up that image of that gun. The physical fact of that pistol on the table opened a window onto a world of unimaginable glamour and evil, that I would not rediscover until I wandered into Warhol's factory one afternoon, looking to cop some speed. Bulldog's seminar, however, took place before that, during the heyday of Hemingway, Pollock, and Kerouac. So the issue in these days was the conflict between masculinity and commerce. Between the tragic condition of the heroic artist and the ludicrous spectacle of the effeminate sellout, the issue kept coming up in the seminar because a couple of fledgling Brandos were as deeply concerned with their putative masculinity as my sculpture professor, Mr. Olivetti, who reminded us about once a week that an artist, a real artist, is not a goddamn sissy. I found this daunting. As the product of Smash Mouth, Texas, I was looking forward to a long career of unrepentant sissydom. Thankfully, old Volbach set things straight, casually dismissing all this heroic posturing as misty bullshit. These muscle-bound whiners, he said, they do not want to make the new world. They want their power back. They want to turn back the clock. You should not let them do it. He then proceeded to explain to us that, in case we hadn't heard, there had been two great wars in this century, and a number of smaller ones, into which most of the able-bodied and apparently heterosexual men in Europe and the United States had been drafted. Excepting those in critical industries, in government or in education. Moreover, he pointed out, the arts, theater, dance, music, painting, and sculpture. Were not critical industries, nor were they government, nor were they education. They were little businesses, so all the heterosexual men were drafted out of them. So who is left? Volbach asked, thrusting his finger into the air and swaying behind it. Queers and women and a bunch of old Jews. Suddenly they are the arts. They do a little business in the night. They get paid a little for it and do their best. While the government and the goyim are out killing one another, then the war is over, and all the big brave soldiers come home, feeling very angry and very heroic. And what do they find? They find the world has changed. This was true in Weimar, and it is true again today. All these soldiers look around and see the culture of their nation being run by effeminate, Semitic commercial pansies. And they are shocked. For the first time in history, the songs we sing, the pictures we see, and the plays we attend are not being dispensed by overeducated Aryan muscle boys 
and these muscle boys are very upset. But what can they do? Business is business, after all. Even Aryan muscle boys believe in that, and as long as pictures are being bought, and plays are being attended, and songs are being sung, well, you might think they can't do any wrong. Well, you might think they can't do anything, Volbach said slyly, but you would be wrong, because the muscle boys still control the government and the universities. The professors and the bureaucrats, they were not drafted. They are cozy in their little bund, pleasing no one but themselves. And they tell themselves that even though business is business, culture is culture too, and culture is public business. So all the muscle boy artists and writers, they will become professors and the darlings of professors, and they will teach the young to revere their pure muscle boy art because it is good for them. And they will teach women and Jews and queers to make this muscle boy art too. And it will be very pure because they are muscle boys and they don't have to please anyone. So there will be no cabaret, no pictures, no fantasy, no flashing lights, no filth or sexy talk, no cruelty, no melodies, no laughter, no Max Reinhardt, no Urfaust, no A Midsummer Night's Dream. And nobody will love it. And nobody will pay money to own it or to see it. But that will not matter. The government will pay for it, and the universities. Because paying your own money for culture and making your own money out of it this is a Jew thing, a queer thing, and a silly woman thing. It means you are not satisfied with what the professors provide, with what the Reich minister tells you is good. It means you want more, and that is unpatriotic. Here, Volbach paused for a moment, and even though I hadn't said a single word, he fixed his gaze on me and continued. So all you Aryan muscle boys down there at the end of the table, don't be Aryan muscle boys. I have seen enough official culture. I will teach you how to hit your marks and set the lights and make the tempo float. The rest you will have to learn from women and queers out in the dark. And don't be too artistic to count your own receipts. Also, carry your pistol. There are thugs out there. Thus spoke Herr Volbach, and even though it's not Volbach verbatim, and does not begin to convey the majesty of his disdain. This is the world he showed to me, which was the world that I found when I abandoned my graduate studies in 1967 and opened a commercial art gallery. It was heaven, in other words. Danger, glamour, queers, women, and Jews. No structure, no credentials, just soldiers of desires doing a little business in the night. And even though that world is dead, thoroughly institutionalized and never to return, the pale angular ghost of Herr Bulbach continues to flicker in my consciousness, as he used to prowl the back of the darkened theater, like a lion tamer banished to a petting zoo, berating us for our lack of energy and nerve. Hey, you up there, he would shout. Yes, you, Aryan muscle boy, can't you count? Don't you have any bones? You look like a piece of meat up there. Be electric. Act like a human creature. You poor fool. Do you want to starve in the streets?